thinking about the announcement that uh, Pastor James made about uh, uh, Calvary Chapel Mission Valley, that they're going to be starting services in, uh, uh, on, on Easter Sunday uh, on the 8th. And, uh, and the thought came to mind, it hadn't in the other services, but I started thinking, okay, understand this. They're going to be starting their services over there at Riverside High School on the 8th. That's not all of us going over there. We're still having church here. Just want to remind you of that, just to let you know, okay? Because sometimes our minds think that way. We're having Easter over there at Riverside. Everybody, ah! now, now, if you do go, you'll find Pastor Joe there, but I don't know what time they're starting. So, well, whatever time they're starting, that's what time they're going to be there. But we're going to be here, regular services, Saturday night, uh, the 7th at 5.30, and uh, two Sunday morning services, 9 and 11. Okay, just I'll throw that out there. I mean, we'd all like to be there with Pastor Joe as he begins that, uh, that study. But we have to be here too, so. All right. Well, it, I had every intention of going through the whole of chapter 16 today. But the more I looked into this particular passage of Scripture, the more I realized it's going to take us a couple of weeks. So uh, I want you to uh, turn to Genesis chapter 16. And... Uh, There are some things that I believe we need to focus upon from looking at the first six verses of this particular chapter in the life of Abraham. I'm going to read the first three verses as we get into our study today. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, Bear him no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. I'm sure that many of you have heard of or have seen in the Sunday comics a person named Hagar the Horrible right you all know who he is Hagar the Viking you know beard and helmet with horns on it well Hagar has always been one of my favorite comic strip characters and I think it's because there's something there's just something about him that begs sympathy Think about it. No one ever gives him any respect. He's not valued for the special person that he is. Not even by his wife of all people. And to top it all off, he's constantly controlled and picked on by those closest to him. And so he struggles with life. He struggles with no real freedom and having no fun. But there's another Hagar in the scriptures that we'll be focusing on today that can also relate to our comic strip character. But this Hagar is a she and not a he. And apart from that uh, small detail, they share much in common. This Hagar, as we will call her today, Hagar, was the maidservant of Sarai, or Sarah, Abraham's wife. And like Hagar, the horrible, she was not given any respect. She was not valued. And she was picked on by those closest to her. But the focus of our account doesn't really begin with Hagar, but, but with Sarah, with Sarai. Now, 
Sarah actually may be the very first person in the book of Genesis to seek to popularize a, a common motto spouted by many an unknowing, an unknowing Christian as biblical. She would probably be the first one to popularize this common phrase, God helps those who help themselves. By the way, this is not a phrase that you will find in the Bible. Just in case you started looking it up. It's not there. And just to set the scene a little bit as to what's going to take place, let's go back a little bit. In Genesis 15, we see that God makes a promise to and, and, and confirms that promise and his covenant with Abraham. The Lord had chosen Abraham in order to bless him so he could be a blessing to the whole world. God wanted a peculiar people group to call his very own from the line of Seth. And so he finds Abram in Ur of the Chaldees. And he calls Abram to come out of his homeland, to come out away from his family to go to a place that he's never been or a place that he's never known of. And he goes by faith and he trusts God. And it will be out of this Abram who will later be called Abraham through which the nation of Israel is born. Abraham will beget Isaac. Isaac will beget Jacob. And Jacob will later have his name changed by God to Israel. It would be the Hebrew nation that God is calling to be his own particular people group. So he finds Abraham, this willing patriarch who, who had the faith to step out and to follow the, the Lord to a distant country. And so... While this is going on, God promises Abraham a number of things. Three things in particular that we want to look at today. You go back to Genesis chapter 12, and in verse 2, there are three things that he promises Abraham. First of all, verse 2 says, God speaking to Abraham, he says, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Now, first of all, from Abraham would come a great nation. That's the first promise. From Abraham would come a great nation. Which means that it would come directly from him. And specifically, it would come from him through the wife that God gave him, which is Sarah. And this nation would be numbering more than the sands of the seashore and more than the stars in the sky. Now, there were two small details and small problems here. First of all, Abraham had no children, and Sarah, his wife, was barren. Not to mention that both of them were quite up in years. But more on this in a moment. The second thing that God promised was that Abraham's name would become great, and he, of course, I've mentioned this a number of times, Abraham is revered by the Jews by Christians and by Muslims. So his name has become great. The third thing that God promised was that from him, all nations would be blessed. And again, the idea is all nations would be blessed from that which comes forth from him, as God had planned through him and his wife Sarah. And all nations would be blessed by this how? Because ultimately, this finds its fulfillment, this promise finds its fulfillment in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was a Jew. And you trace Jesus, as the, as the Gospels do, God, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, tracing Jesus back through David, the line of David, back through the tribe of Judah, that came forth out of Jacob, who came forth out of Isaac, who came forth out of Abraham, 
who is tied all the way back to the line of Seth and eventually all the way back to Adam himself. Now, while this was all well and good, Abraham had a bit of a dilemma. It was ten years since the promise was given. And he was no closer to seeing the promise fulfilled. Ten years later. Now, part of what we saw in last week's study, in the last couple of weeks we were dealing with chapter 15 and dealing with the the doubts that uh, Abraham had and the fears that he had and, and even the disappointments. All of that came forth came out and God dealt with that and then and then the Lord gave him a sign through the covenant. He gave Abraham a sign. God fulfilled a covenant between Abraham and himself by taking both sides of the covenant and keeping both sides of the covenant uh, agreement for them. So, Abraham believed God. He trusted God. Doubts put aside. Now, the friend of God, Abraham, was a youthful 75 when he set out from his homeland. Do we have any youthful 75s here today? Sometimes those who are in that age range, you know, would say, well, I'm 75, I'm not quite as youthful, youthful as I was. But Abraham was a youthful 75. And then 10 years later, see, see, he was, youthful, he was a youthful 75 when he set out to the homeland, away from his homeland, I should say. 10 years later, he's still only 85. Plenty of good life still in him is... When that, isn't that what we say to those who are 85 today? And then nowadays we say, you're 85. Ah. We pray that you have some good life left in you. But in those days, Abraham still had good life left in him. Because you see, his father only lived 205 years. And Abraham would live 175 years. So, at 75, he was at the prime of his life. Now, wouldn't you like to be 75 and at the prime of your life? That'd be wonderful. But there's a problem. He had unfulfilled promises yet to have happen. He had unfulfilled promises that had yet to be fulfilled. And have you ever thought about this, that unfulfilled promises and hopes and dreams, they have a way of making a person feel older than they are? Have you ever gone through that? Certain things may have passed you by in life, and, and you know, the more you think about the, the unfulfilling of those things, that you just kind of think, you know, it just kind of makes me feel a little older, because I haven't seen them yet. I haven't seen them fulfilled. You know, Abraham believed God. But failing to see God work as soon as we think he should, we might begin to feel that he's waiting for us to do our part before he will do his. Think about that for just a moment. I really want you to search your heart about this thought. I want to repeat it. Because I don't want you to miss what what, what I'm trying to get at here. Failing to see God work as soon as we think He should? We might begin to feel that He's waiting for us to do our part before He will do His. I haven't seen things happen. Maybe, maybe just maybe, uh, maybe God's waiting for me to do something. Maybe I need to get up and I need to start kind of helping God out here. You ever try to help God out? You know, God is very gracious. But He doesn't need our help. He knows what He's doing. And when God does want us to do something, He'll let us know. 
Abraham got ten, went, went ten years and still didn't know what God wanted. But, but he was believing, but, you see, I, I, I really trust you, Lord, but. Is there something else? We start thinking that, you know, maybe what we need to do is we need to devise the plan. We need to come up with something to help God out here. I, I, I love the way a lot of times we do things, you know. We think we've got to help God out, so we devise a plan. We, we put this whole thing together. We map it out. We work it all out. We, we plan it out. We put out the blueprints. And then we roll it up and we go to prayer and we take it and we lay it out and say, Lord, bless this. We want God to bless our plan. You ever done that? We may then devise various plans and programs to get it done, only to find that it's all in vain, and in fact we are probably doing more harm than good. And so when we get to Genesis chapter 16, we find a very unhappy couple. A very unhappy couple. Let's look at the, verse, the verses here, verses 1 through 4 of our text. I'm going to comment along the way about some things. Now, Sarah, or Sarai, Abram's wife, bear him no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. More than likely, when they were in Egypt a few years earlier, she was a young girl. One of the people that uh, was given by Pharaoh as just, uh, you know, letting Abraham know, look, here's some spoils here that you could take with you. Please just go. And they took people with them and they became as servants in the house of Abraham. And Abraham, you know, would take care of them and all. But this young girl in the few years became a young woman and was now a handmaid of Sarah. But she came from Egypt. And Egypt was a problem for Abraham and Sarah. And Egypt would still be a problem no matter where Abraham and Sarah went. And Sarah, or Sarai, said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing. Now, let me just interject here that at that point, Sarah should have just stopped talking. Right at that point. She just said something of great significance, but that's where she should have stopped. But she didn't. And notice what she goes on to say. I pray thee, speaking, remember, speaking to Abraham, I pray thee, go in unto my maid. Now, that's just very PG King James. Because what Sarah was saying to Abraham was, I want you to go in and have sexual relations with my handmaid, Hagar. That it may be that I may obtain children by her. Now, this was a custom of the time, and I'll talk about that more in just a moment. So this is what Sarah says to Abraham. What's even sadder is the next sentence. And Abraham hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Okay. You're 85 years old. You do what your wife says. Okay, where is she? The story's not getting any better, is it? And Sarai, Abram's wife, and by the way, did you notice that was already said? We know that Sarai is Abram's wife, but God is wanting us to remember that. And He says it again. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and God wants us to remember it's ten years down the road still. 
and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. They just changed the rules. They just changed the standard that God had given about marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But this was the custom of the time. All the world's doing it. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, her mistress, Sarai, was despised in her eyes. Now it appears that it was Sarah's faith that was weakened first. It appears that Sarah's faith was weakened first. She may have felt so ashamed of her barrenness. Because you see, having to be a wife, your responsibility was to bear children. And when you didn't bear children, that brought shame to the husband and the family. In the Middle Eastern culture. And for many years it remained that way. Even in the Hebrew culture. But she may have felt that, 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 that shame of the barrenness, that, that she made this problematic proposal to her husband. It was time now to bring out plan B. Because obviously plan A isn't coming to fruition. Now, these are the first words that Sarah speaks that are recorded for us in the book of Genesis. And while the sum of her words are wicked in light of God's truth, her first words are actually a treasure of wisdom. The very first thing that she says. Look at verse 2 again, because in verse 2, the first phrase that she says is, Behold, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing. Stop. Period. Speak no more, Sarah. Sarah, (coughs) excuse me, was trying to preface her remarks by describing her circumstances, and within that prefacing phrase is a precious principle revealed when she said, the Lord has restrained me. That's a truth. The Lord has restrained me. And had Sarah meditated upon that wonderful insight, if she would have just stopped and said, wow, the Lord was the one that restrained me. And just meditated upon that. The heartache and the heartbreak and the anger and the bitterness that was to come in the events of chapter 16, they would have never occurred. They would have never occurred. You see, the Lord had indeed restrained her from bearing a child. But, you know, we've read on, haven't we? We, we know the fact that God was going to perform the, one of the greatest of miracles, of course. To take a person who was about 75 years old, speaking of Sarah, a person who was already barren, And he was going to allow her the precious privilege of bearing a child, Abraham, Sarah, together at the age of 75 to show God's power, to show that with God all things are possible. So the Lord had indeed restrained her from bearing a child. That child would be born to her And she would give the name Isaac, Isaac, laughter. 
And it was to be, he was to be the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And his birth would later serve as an illustration. For in Galatians chapter 4, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of Isaac as born through the promise of God and not through the power of the flesh. As a matter of fact, I'd like for you to turn there. Galatians chapter 4. Now we're going to come back to this later, but for now, we just, I just want you to hear what it is that Paul is saying, showing, excuse me, showing the contrast between the power of the flesh and the promise of the Spirit which is also the, the power of the Spirit, as opposed to the power of the flesh. So in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 28, Paul, in dealing with the issue of legalism, in dealing with the issues of, 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 of Judaizers coming into the churches in Galatia and, 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 and telling the people in the churches, listen, if you want to be a good Christian, you need to first be a good Jew. Therefore, you men need to be circumcised and you need to go through these particular rites and whatsoever. And Paul is saying, no, you don't. Jesus has already done the work for us. You're now saved by grace, by faith through grace, or grace through faith and that not of yourselves. But this is what he says in verse 21. He says, tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid being Agar, the other by a free woman being Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. Later on, that will be Ishmael. But he of the free woman, that would be Isaac, was by promise. Isaac was by the promise that God gave. Which things are an allegory. For there are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which genders to bondage, which is Agar. So Agar actually represents really bondage to the law. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem itself... As he says in the next verse, is above free, which is the mother of us all. Or, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate has many more children than she which has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So it, it's, it's all to say that when you consider the difference between what has taken place with Agar and what was to take place with Sarah, we are talking about the difference between being under the law and being under the grace of God. Living under the power of the flesh or living under the promise of God. So that's what was going to be happening in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. The very circumstances of Isaac's Isaac's birth to Abraham and Sarah were intended to illustrate a timeless spiritual principle. Their life was to be a metaphor to others looking on for centuries to come. And so God's restraints were intended to be a wonderful blessing to Sarah and Abraham and to the entire human race. Even the restraints of waiting upon God until the right time for Sarah to have Isaac. The restraints that seemed to them to be so unbearable were actually God's best for them. Ten years? Twenty years? How long? But God had promised, therefore, if God had promised, we can trust the promise of God no, long, no matter how long it's going to take. God's restraint in our lives are intended to be a wonderful blessing to us, to our families, to the church, and to all of those whose lives we influence. The restraints in our lives are intended to be wonderful blessings to us. Now, Sometimes those restraints, restraints may, may, may be unbearable. But they're actually God's best for us. You know why they're unbearable sometimes? They're unbearable because, you know, we are people of action. We are people on the move. We are, I mean, we're living in a time, I mean, we're in the iPad generation. We, are, got, we got our iPhones and our iPads and our iPods. 
And we, we, we've got schedules to keep. We've got places to go. We've got things to do. And we've got to do them all now because, you know, hey, listen, I'm not getting any, any younger. And we try to live this way before God. Even our own Christianity sometimes suffers because we can't understand what God is doing and making us wait for things. Because we're not really easy to wait for things, you know. We've got all this technology. And I've got to be here and I've got to be there. Makes me wonder sometimes. We, have, we all have alarm clocks, don't we? You probably know where I'm going with this. We all have alarm clocks. Well, I think we do. Maybe you ought to get one. Sometimes I just wonder. We won't be late to a lot of things, but we'll be late to church. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm not speaking about anybody. I'm not here to, you know, offer any kind of condemnation. No, 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 no. No, no. No, I'm just, I'm just saying. But this is the kind of thing, you know, we're in. We're in this kind of, you know, go, 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 go kind of thing. But do we wait to hear what God has to say? And sometimes He's promised and we have said, but Lord, I need an answer now. Let me help you. Let me help you, God. Obviously, you are, you're busy. You, you have all of the universe's problems to take care of and you're here and you're all you're there and 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 you know my problem let me help you out because we got to move here there's a lesson that abraham and sarah needed to have learned that they had not learned it yet so i'm i'm hoping that we are ready to learn that lesson along with them Because it was obviously not learned by them. And some of us need to learn this lesson or at least to relearn it or to remember the lesson. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. The context, by the way, has to do with Abraham. You'll see that in the, in, the, in the next verse after this. Verse 12, Paul says, That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then it speaks of Abraham. Listen, there's the lesson. Faith and patience. Y'all see that? Faith and patience. What does that sound like to you? That sounds very much like Abraham. That sounds very much like Abraham, doesn't it? (laughs) He was a man of faith. And God said, I promise that these things are going to happen through you, with you, and to you. These things are going to happen. But Lord, they haven't happened yet. But do you trust me? Yeah, I trust you. Okay. He was a man of faith. He had to become a man of patience. Why? Because ten years down the road, the promises haven't been fulfilled. Faith and patience. Go over to Hebrews 10. And look at verses 35 and 36. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. Cast not away therefore your confidence which has great recompense of reward, for you have need of patience. You have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. I just love that little phrase. You have need of patience. I have need of patience. We have need of patience. All God's children have need of patience. Have you wondered why? Because we are impatient. Something we bring over sometimes from our past. 
impatience. And this is the reason why a lot of people sometimes in the church even, they say, Lord, Lord, you know, somebody just, you know, pastor just said, I need patience, so Lord, give me patience, and give it to me now. That's how we ask Him. Why? Because we're impatient people. We have to learn to wait. If we have faith, we can wait. Sometimes we forget that. If we really trust God, we can wait on Him, can't we? Because we know God never does anything. He never does anything outside of His time continuum. And He never does anything outside of what, what, what we need to have in our lives. He's never late to give us what we need. He's always on time. And there's something else about God that I, that I love, and we see it in Jesus. I never see in the Scriptures, I never see Jesus run. Has anybody ever seen Jesus run? He never runs anywhere. He takes His time. Because He always knows what we need when we need it. You have need of patience. I have need of patience. We all have need of patience. Sarah had need of patience. But what did she propose? What was her, pro- what was her proposal here? Let's look again. Verse 2. Sarai said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Wow. Abraham, rather than exercise his spiritual leadership in his home, rather than say to Sarah, Sarah, you are off the wall with this suggestion. God has told me He's going to keep His promise. I don't care if it takes another 10 years or another 30 years. We're going to trust God. And He doesn't do that. Instead, He acts like one of His fathers. Adam. You remember Genesis chapter 3? You remember when, when Eve was in the garden and having a conversation with the serpent? And where was Adam all this time? He was there, but he was just there with his hands next to his side because he had no pockets. <laughs> and so he's just there. And the serpent is there to... Deceive Eve and get her to, to look at that fruit that God says, you know, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day that you eat of that fruit, you all will surely die. But the serpent, who is Satan, was very deceptive and Eve took of the fruit. And there Adam, who was the one who had received the commandment from God not to eat of the fruit when he should have taken his hands away from his side and pointed to her and said, put that fruit down because of what God told us. And he didn't do it. What did he do? Look at the fruit, Adam. Oh, okay. You know. What happened, Adam? The perfect man is no longer perfect. And here, Abraham, the man who is a friend of God, the man who has trusted God all this time, now hears from his wife, and he says, Go here, have sex with my, with my handmaiden. And he goes, Okay. What happened? Men, don't get any ideas, please. Sariah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, or Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. Gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And notice verse 4. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. 
In other words, this wasn't the solution to the problem. I said before that it's believed that Hagar was acquired during Abraham's disastrous trip into Egypt. Now, God had restored them, but the consequences of Abraham's poor decision were still with them. Egypt had been spiritually unprofitable, but Sarai was willing to try an Egyptian solution to her spiritual problem. Now, technically it was more than just an Egyptian solution. It was the custom of the Egyptians to have what is called surrogate adoption. It was the custom of many of the pagan nations, Canaanites and others, that surrounded Abraham and Sarah at that time. It was their custom, and it was actually something that was in the code of Hammurabi. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, but this was the custom of the time. But it was not God's custom. It was not God's standard. So we can then consider that Egyptian solutions in reality really are fleshly solutions, worldly solutions, and carnal solutions. And they will always present themselves when we're waiting to hear from God. And they'll always present themselves. And they will eventually prove themselves unwise. Because you see, it may have been a socially acceptable and lawful practice for a barren wife to give her husband one of her servants as a secondary wife to bear children. Legally, the children would be considered the husband's own and would bear his name and become his physical heirs. But what is socially accepted and perfectly lawful in a worldly culture is not always God's best for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Is it? No. We think that just because the world is doing it, and look at all the pressure the world is giving to the church today. Oh, you silly people in the church, you know. Listen, join the 21st century here. Well, we, you know, you, you guys still are holding on to what this, this male and female kind of marriage type thing. I mean, let's come on, let's join the, let's join the crowd here. God's standards never changed. Because God doesn't change. He set the standard for all and for all time. First Corinthians 6 verse 12, Paul says, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. What that means is that all things are not beneficial. All things are lawful, he goes on to say, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, Paul will repeat the first phrase again. He will say, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient or beneficial. But notice the next phrase. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. All things do not edify. All things will not build me up. All the things that may be lawful to me in the world will not build me up as a, as a uh, person who believes and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the things of this world will not get me closer to the Word of God. It won't get me closer to God Himself. It will not help me to focus on the things of God. It will not help me to focus on the things that God has called me to do as His son or daughter. It, all, all these things that the world may consider to be right are the things that are going to tear us down because all things may be lawful, but they are not beneficial. And folks, it is easy to see that Sarah ought to have submitted herself to God's providential care. Sarah should have, should have just submitted herself to God's provision for her life and timing for her life and wisdom for her life. God, uh, I should say, Sarah should have submitted herself to God's providential care. So it's easy to see Sarah having to submit herself, but you know it's harder to see it in our own lives. It's easy to see it in somebody else. Well, that person really needs Jesus. Well, that person really needs help. Well, that person really needs this. But you know what? It's hard to see it in us. And a lot of times we'll say, I don't really need that. I mean, you know, well, you know, you know, you know. No, I don't know. Maybe you need to know. 
It's time to submit yourself to the providence of God, to the sovereignty of God, to the purposes of God. What happens is that we must identify when our situation is a matter of God's providence. We need to identify when our situations and our circumstances are a matter of God's providence. You see, Sarah had God's internal witness that God's providence was restraining her. She had that witness. It was her testimony. That's exactly what she stated the very first thing that she said to Abraham. It is the Lord that has restrained me. But she was obviously not content with God's providence. And folks, that is our problem sometimes. We may be dealing with with the restraints that God puts on our lives for for a time. And we say, okay, you're restraining me, but Lord, I don't like it. I'm not content with this. And we get angry with God. And we challenge God. And sometimes we turn away from God. I want you to remember something that Paul said in Philippians chapter 4. This was late in Paul's life. Philippians was one of the last letters that Paul wrote. And, and, and late in life, he had learned this lesson, just as we have to learn it. You know, we oftentimes say that the Apostle Paul was the, one of the greatest teachers in the Scriptures, and that's true. But he was also one of the greatest learners. Because if you're going to be a great teacher, you've got to be a good learner too. So I realize that when Paul says this statement, he says, not that I speak in respect of one, in other words, of what I'm lacking in my life. He says, for I have learned, notice, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Paul had learned to be content in times of, of, uh, in times of, of, of his uh, uh, abundance. He had learned to be content in the times when he was abased when things were taken away from him he learned to be content when he had to go through so much suffering as a as a disciple and an, an apostle of Jesus Christ he learned to see how that could lead others to Jesus Christ he learned to be content in whatever state he was in Sarah wouldn't submit to God's providence. Neither would she nor Abraham submit to God's principles. The very simple principle that God had given Sarah to him. So that they together would be the recipients of his grace. And of his miraculous grace. To bring forth a child at the age of the ages that they would be eventually 80 and 90. But it was as if Sarah had, had gone to the, to the grocery store. I, I think sometimes you do this. You, you get in line at the grocery store. A lot of people in the grocery store, the supermarket, and you're in line and you're looking at the, the displays with all the magazines and you see the Inquirer and all of the telenovela stuff and whatever. And, you know, you're just looking at it. And so you start picking it up and you start reading it, you know. And there goes Sarah to the supermarket one day and she sees, a, you know, the coat of Hammurabi. And she says, oh, I wonder what this says, you know. She's reading the, the Canaanite uh, Inquirer and she, you know, just flipping through the pages and there it says Code of Hammurabi and she says oh look you know she reads and then she says oh here's the there's that 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 code of, of the surrogate adoption you know that you know if I if I were to give uh, uh, you know, my husband uh, one of my handmaids and well you know her children would be my children because she's my handmaid and so you know I think you know what I'm going to take this home and she puts it in her cart and then uh, you know she gets through the line and then she goes to Abraham and she tells him how they could solve their problem. And this law of surrogate adoption was in that legislative code that was honored by the Canaanites and the surrounding pagans. The code of Hammurabi. Obviously, <clears throat> following plan B brought tremendous strain upon Abraham and Sarah's marriage. And I'm sure that their knowledge of Adam and Eve's woes and consequences was fresh on their minds as well. 
Plan B wasn't the way God wanted it to be. By the way, let me clarify providence for you. Let me clarify providence. Providence means that God has not abandoned the world that he created, but rather works within the creation to manage all things according to the counsel of his own will. Let me repeat that because I want you to understand this. Providence means that God has not abandoned the world that he created, but rather works within that creation to manage all things according to the counsel of his own will. Now, Christians readily acknowledge God's providence until it affects their own lives. You see, when it comes to God's management of great, sweeping, historic, and prophetic events, we're blessed. Right? You know, we're reading the book of Revelation or we're reading one of the prophets and we begin to see, you know, all of the prophetic things that are happening today. And then we read the paper and we look at Israel and we look at Iran and Iraq and all the things that are going on in the Middle East. And we say, oh my goodness, God's providence. You know, God has everything under control, doesn't he? God has everything under control. Boy, what a great God we have, you know, to put our care, uh, you know, our, our hands in, in his providential care, our, our, our situations as a, uh, you know, as a world in, in, into his providential care. Right. And, and so we're saying, yes, oh, we're blessed by that until what? Until we run into a problem uh, personally. And then all of a sudden we're going, oh, God, help. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Right. I'm not trying to make fun of our cries unto God. But the point of the matter is this. When it comes to God's management of the events of our own lives. We can easily get discouraged. But can I tell you something? That the God that does take care of all the things that are taking place in Israel and in the Middle East and in Europe and everywhere else from, you know, and, and here as well, you know, even though there's so much chaos, God's still in control, isn't he? Isn't that God big enough to be able to take care of the problems that you have? Shouldn't we then place our trust in God's providential care? I remember a book that I, one of the first books I had as a Christian back 40 years ago. It was a book entitled, Our God is Too Small. Our God is Too Small. The fact of the matter is, we are making God too small. Our God is not too small. Our God is awesome. He is the creator of all things and he is above all things and he is bigger than all things. But when we get discouraged, we oftentimes feel that we have to help God out. And here we see Sarah and Abraham trying to help God out. I'm going to give you two things to think about today. The first one is this. They, speaking of Sarah and Abraham, They thought the problem was bigger than God. They thought the problem was bigger than God. Do you see anywhere in the first six verses of this passage where first of all, Abraham stands up and he says, you know what? I don't like that proposal. I think we better go outside, stack up some some stones and build an altar and sacrifice unto the Lord. And then we need to pray and we need to wait upon the Lord for the answer here. Do we see that happening? Or do we even see that uh, they decide, you know what, let's pray about this first. Let's take this to the Lord. We don't see that, do we? What happened? What happened to their trust in the Lord? They thought the problem was bigger than God, therefore they're going to help God solve the problem. He went in unto Hagar, verse 4. She conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abraham, look at this. Look at what happens because they're trying to help God out. Sarah says to Abraham, my wrong be upon thee. You know what that means in our language? 
Abraham, it's your fault. Now, I can just see Abraham's face. Moi? Me? Wait a minute. You were the one that brought me plan B. I just was a good husband. I just shut up and let you talk. And I said, okay. Especially when you said about Hagar. What's the first thing that goes when we try to do things ourselves? For ourselves. The first thing that goes is our responsibilities. We don't want to take them. We won't take responsibility. Put it aside. My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord. Now they bring the Lord into it. Sarah says, the Lord judge between me and thee. See who he strikes down first. But Abraham said unto Sarai, By the way, this gets worse. Because he now says to Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. Uh, Time out. She's your wife now. That was your agreement. Outside of God's plan, but you, you know. You two have become one and you're having a child. Boy, this doesn't look good for Abraham, does it? And when Sarai dealt hardly or harshly with Agar, she fled from her face. Sarah's rebellion vented itself in two ways. First of all, with an untamed tongue, and secondly, with an untamed temper. Abraham became the target of her untamed tongue in that untamed tongue in that she said to him, It's your fault. You know, it isn't easy to explain this tangled logic that she had. What we do know is that her impatience led to sins of jealousy and of blaming others. It began with her impatience. Her faith had become so weakened that she didn't trust God anymore. Now, let's try to be fair to everyone here. If I could use the word fair for a moment. Was she feeling that Abraham was favoring Hagar because he had not stepped in to correct Hagar's scorn of her? You know, that's quite possible. But see, that's the problem with having two wives. It's beginning to look more and more like Abraham's responsibility. Because it's understandable that Abraham should have acted as a spiritual leader earlier and told Sarah that God was able to perform what he had promised and they didn't need to help God out in the works of the flesh. But he didn't do that. They're both at fault. He then made the situation worse by turning the situation over to Sarai and not taking care of the child he is father too. He wasn't there to support Hagar. At least up to this point here. He also allows her to mistreat her handmaiden. He allows Sarah to mistreat her handmaiden. But what does all of this allow then? Sarah won't submit to God and she won't submit to her husband and she became really stinky with Hagar. So before we go on to the next scene in this real life drama, I want to give you a second thought to take home with you. The first, of course, is that Sarah and Abraham thought that the problem was bigger than God. The second thought is this, that God's restraints set us free 
to pursue God's righteousness. We need to understand why there are restraints in our lives sometimes. They are there for us to be free to pursue God's righteousness. Let them know that I'm almost done. (laughs) Folks, if we take anything home with us today, if we take anything home with us today, let's remember that we need to trust God's restraints on our lives for good. Remember that all things do work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 We need to rest patiently in God's care, in God's concern, in God's timing, in His wisdom, and in His approach toward us in our daily circumstances and situations. Peter himself said that God that we are to cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. But I want to leave you with a prescription for dealing with impatience today. And we'll pick up here next time. Psalm 37. I'm going to give you a few verses. We're going to close with Isaiah 40. Psalm 37, verses 7 through 9 says, it says, rest in the Lord. The psalmist says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Really, if you want to sum it all up, that that phrase is your prescription. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. What was it that Abraham and Sarah did not do? They did not rest in the Lord. They did not wait patiently for him. He goes on to say, the psalmist does, he says, fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way. By the way, fret not doesn't mean fear not. A lot of people think that fret means fear. It actually means don't be angry. Fret not means don't be angry because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Notice verse 8, cease from anger. So you know the context. Don't fret. Cease from anger. And forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Don't become so angry that you end up doing the evil. Okay. And then in verse 9 it says, For evildoers evil shall be cut off. But those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Go back to Psalm 27, just a couple of pages back. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Are you waiting on the Lord? By the way, to wait on the Lord is not just to sit and go... No, 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 no. It's not waiting on the Lord. That's not, you know, that's, you know, some of it, not the, with the whistling, the whistling, no, no, no. But, but just, you know, we do wait, we have to wait on the Lord, you know, for Him to act on our behalf. But do you know that it also means something else? It means that we are to serve the Lord. Those of you that wait tables, you're servers, aren't you? What has God called each and every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ? Servants. We need to wait on the Lord. We need to worship Him. While we're waiting, we're worshiping Him. While we're waiting, we're giving honor and glory to Him. We are serving Him, trusting that He's going to give to us what we need at the time that we need it. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And then go forward to Psalm 62, verses 4 through 8. I begin with a contrast. The contrast being the way some people actually approach God nowadays, which is they approach Him with their their mouths, but not with their hearts. And it says in verse 4, They only consult to cast Him down from His excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. But notice the contrast in verse 5. My soul, wait thou only upon God. You know, the psalmist is actually speaking to himself. That doesn't mean he's crazy. He's just reminding himself that he needs to wait on the Lord. Notice he says, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times. You people, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. You see, these are things, statements made in passion. Passionately trusting and believing in the God who has promised only His good toward those who love Him. 
Lastly, James, well not lastly, but James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. New Testament now. James 1 verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying or the testing of your faith worketh or produces patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire or complete, lacking or wanting nothing. Count it a joy when you face those trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. If your faith is being tested, God is producing patience in you to wait upon him. And then lastly, Isaiah 40, verse 31. We read it at the beginning of our service today. We sang about it in our worship time. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait on the Lord. Trust that the restraints that the Lord may have placed upon your life for a time, just a time, are only there for your good. Trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We bless you. We praise you. We worship you.